Man, it's so good to see you all here today. And I'm excited that we get to continue in our study on right division. This is, this is part two. We started last week. Go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And what I'm going to try to do with all of these points of how to study the Bible is I want to also give you illustrations of what happens when we fail to obey right division, when we fail to obey these principles of Bible study that aren't invented by man, they're built into the text. So let's, let's dive in. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and look at verse 15, and let's read it out loud together. Ready? Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. If you can rightly divide the truth, you can wrongly divide it. So just a quick review. To understand the Bible, we must understand its divisions. If we're going to understand the Bible, we must understand its divisions. And we're going to be going over some of those divisions. And we do that because the Bible tells us to. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. One of the things that um, is really important, notice what the verse says, rightly dividing the word of truth. You have to believe you have the word of truth to care about the words. Okay? Let me say that again. You have to believe you have the word of God to care about its words. So you can get an updated Shakespeare Right? And there's nothing more lame than Shakespeare in modern language. It's terrible. Have any of you ever tried to read that? It's awful. Pilgrim's Progress in modern language. It's, it's just a waste of time. And even more of a waste of time is changing the words of the Bible to try and fit with a changing culture. So if you're going to change your Bible to fit a changing culture, you need to have a Bible about every 30 years. So how can we ever have a historic faith? How can we ever continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine when the words are constantly changing? It's very important that we have an authority. It's vital that we do that. So to understand the Bible, we must understand its divisions. Last week we looked at this. Jesus said in Luke 22.20, Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. The first and most important division in understanding your Bible is that there's a New Testament and an Old Testament. The problem is most people don't know where the New Testament started. And that leads to all kinds of problems. People are praying prayers from the Beatitudes that don't have anything to do with us. They're good, they're good life lessons, but those are the king's rules for the kingdom. Jesus was there to establish his kingdom. He was establishing the rules for his kingdom. They rejected the king. Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. He established the church age. He is going to return and begin establishing his kingdom again, and those rules will be operative. The meek shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. How's that working out? No. No. The, the, if, if you don't have power, a greater power will overthrow you. As a matter of fact, didn't Jesus Christ say that? If you're going to spoil a man's house, you must first bind the strong man. Jesus understood that. That's a, that's a principle of humanity. 
But because people don't understand where the New Testament started, it causes all kinds of problems. I'm going to get to some of that towards the end of my message. But Jesus said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. The New Testament starts with the shedding of the blood of Christ. The New Testament began with the death of Christ, and this is from Hebrews 9. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. The New Testament started with the death of Christ. Amen? So that's the the first division that we went over last week. So here's a vital principle for understanding the Bible. Okay, let me... Let me stop here for a second. I've already lost some of you. You're tired. You stayed up playing video games last night. Tony Slade's thinking, I don't play video games. Focus on this because here's the problem. You're going to want to explain the Bible to somebody. You're going to, you're going to, we're going to see at the end. There are going to be Christians that you're going to have to have conversations with. Why do you believe the way that you believe? These principles that we're covering right now are vital, vital for your understanding of the scriptures and knowing how to rightly divide. So here, vital principle. You will never understand your Bible if you confuse the Old Testament with the New Testament. Amen? How many of you have been places where you've got to wear something based on what the Old Testament said, and if you wear something that's different than what the Old Testament said, then you're not right with God? Laura and I know a pastor that got into the spiritual warfare stuff, and a lady visited his church. She was wearing a pair of pants. So he went to his house, and he was going to cast out the demon of pants wearing. You think I'm kidding? How many of you, honestly, that might be the weirdest thing you've ever heard? Right? Well, man, there's all kinds of problems with it. There's a misunderstanding of spiritual warfare, and there's this some idea that there is a demon of pants wearing. Where does that stuff come from? You don't get that from preaching the Bible. But what happens is when you start pulling stuff out of the Old Testament that's not affirmed in the Old Testament, when you misunderstand the moral law, which will last forever, and the ceremonial law that ended when Jesus Christ rent that veil in two. Oh, wait a minute. When was that veil rent in two? What what happened before that veil was rent in two? What did Jesus say? Oh, some of you Bible students, you're falling down on the job. You're saying, well, I would have gotten there eventually. Be instant, in season, out of season, the Bible says. Okay, now listen. When, what did Jesus say right before the veil was rent in two? Okay, you're doing better. One more time. What did Jesus say right before the veil was rent in two? Which signified what? His death. Oh, what began then? The New Testament. That the sacrifice was made, the sacrifice was accepted, the sacrifice was worthy, the temple sacrifice no longer needed to exist. So the ceremonial law ended. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, he came to fulfill it. Praise God, he did. So you have to understand the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, or you will never understand your Bible. You say, Pastor, come on. Those of you who have been here, you know, this is the only church you've ever gone to. I know this. Stop it. You're going to see why it's important. All right? So here's, this is all new. There is an overlap in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. One of the reasons for confusion is there's a transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's a book of the Bible. Who knows 
What book of the Bible is the transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament? The book of Acts. See, I feel so good about that. Okay, so now some of the, some people answered for you. So now let's all answer together. All right? What is the book of the Bible that's a transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament? The book of Acts. So what I want to look at today is how is the book of Acts a transition? Because much of the error, doctrinal error, in, in so-called Christian churches comes from a misinterpretation of the book of Acts. So it's really important to understand that the book of Acts was never intended to be a doctrinal treatise. It's a history of the introduction and development of the New Testament church. It's a history of the transition that takes place, and we're going to look at the transitions. There are seven of them we're going to cover. So seven transitions in the book of Acts. The first is from the Jewish Gospels to the church epistles. From the Jewish Gospels to the church epistles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written in a Jewish context, especially the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are primarily Jewish until the death of Christ. The Gospel of John is a little different because the Gospel of John was written after the Apostle Paul's books were written. So there's a lot of Pauline-type doctrine in the Gospel of John, and so that causes people confusion. But we have to understand that the book of Acts is a transition from the Jewish Gospels to the church epistles. And by church epistles, we mean to the church at Rome, to the church at Corinth, to the church at Ephesus, the church at Galatia, Colossae, and on. All right, number two, it's a transition from an Old Testament structure to a New Testament structure. From an Old Testament structure to a New Testament structure. This transition is made because the testator has died and ascended to the Father, putting the New Testament into action or force. Remember, a testament is not a force while the testator liveth. So now we have some commands that are given to us in the New Testament that are different than those commands that were given in the Old Testament. We covered an example of that, Matthew 10, the commission that God gave his disciples when he first sent them out. He said, don't go into any way of the Samaritans, and into, or go, no, don't go into the way of the Gentiles and into the way of the Samaritans. Enter ye not, but go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's a different command than we have. Now go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. What happened in between those two commissions? Jesus died. Jesus died and rose again. There's a different structure. We no longer make sacrifices, right? If we kill something today, it will probably be our children. No, no, that's different. If we kill something today, it's because we're going to get a chicken and pluck it and eat it, right? Chicken, Baptist manna. It's, it's really important that we get this. Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. We don't meet on Saturday. We meet on Sunday, the first day of, day of the week, because there was a new beginning. That new beginning began with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. When Jesus rose from the dead on the first day, that's why we gather together on the first day. We're not worshiping the way of the past. We have a new way. Why? Because Jesus Christ entered into the veil. Jesus Christ sprinkled his own blood on the mercy seat in heaven. And we now have complete forgiveness of sins. We don't have to make a sacrifice over and over again. Jesus Christ tasted death once for every man. Praise God. So it's a transition. Then, from the Jew to the Gentile. From the Jew to the Gentile. 
The Old Testament is primarily a history of God's dealing with the Jewish people. That's what it's about. The church is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's from the Jew to the Gentile. The church age is a parenthesis in God's plan for Israel. Um, it's really important that you get this. The Bible is not about you. Right? The Bible is not... Some, there's this children's song, Every promise in the book is mine. Well, no. 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 Every promise that God made to me is mine. Every promise God made to somebody else is somebody else's promise. Right? And we're going to get to that when we get to context. But it's really important that, that really the Bible is about, the theme of the Bible is that Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign in Jerusalem. That's the key. The church is a parenthesis in God's uh, timing. And that's why the church is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, don't forget that. What did I just say? The church is not what? Mentioned in the Old Testament. Everyone, the church is not... Okay, let's say that again. The church is not... You're going to see towards the end of my message here in two or three hours why that's important. All right? So remember, the church age is a parenthesis in God's plan for Israel. The church is never mentioned in the Old Testament. Can we read that out loud together? You ready? The church is never mentioned in the Old Testament. No fact is more important than this in our study. If you can't see a distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament, please don't teach anybody the Bible. Because we're going to see all kinds of error has come from that mistake. So, it's a transition from the Jew to the Gentile. It's also a transition from Jerusalem to Antioch. So, in Acts chapter 2, the, the disciples have told to, to wait, to tarry, to stay together until you be endued with power from on high. And that happened at Pentecost. That took place in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. There were people from, I think, it's 16 different nations that are represented there. All Jews. And the Holy Spirit falls. And all of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit that were given on the day of Pentecost happened in Jerusalem. But by the time you get two-thirds of the way through the book, by Acts 13, the emphasis has moved Antioch to Antioch, where the church there sends out Paul and Barnabas as missionaries. Now here, let's see, let's check your Bible knowledge. And they were first called Christians at... Okay, some of you were not able to answer. Now you can. The, Andy, don't shake your head at me. I see him doing that. And they were first called Christians at... Where were they first called Christians? Jerusalem. Okay, some of you weren't able to answer that. Jerusalem? Where? Where were they first called Christians? Is the Bible ever mentioned, or is the church ever mentioned in the Old Testament? The book of Acts is a transition from Jerusalem, the city of the Jews, to Antioch, where they begin sending out missionaries. Do you want to hear something else that's really fun? Our New, our New Testament, the manuscripts that underlie our Bible, all are traced back to Antioch, where they were first called. What city was that? What's not in the Old Testament? Oh, some of you fell asleep. What's not in the Old Testament? All right, good. Number five, another transition. From God working to accomplish his plan through the nation of Israel to God working to accomplish his plan through the church. Okay, you already said 
it's a transition from the Jew to the Gentile, or maybe I didn't say that yet, that's one of them. But what's, what's going to happen is in the Old Testament, it's not about you individually, it's about the nation. So the Bible says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. So people who misunderstand how to interpret the Bible, what they say is, well, that means that God chose Jacob for salvation and God chose uh, Esau for hell. That, that's what they think. As if the, the, the word chosen never has anything to do with salvation. It never does. It never does. As a matter of fact, let's just look that up. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. Let's go to Genesis chapter 22. And it's a bummer. I got my new Bible here. It may take me a minute to find it. Somebody help me. You know what I'm looking for. Is it 25? Yeah, here it is. Genesis chapter 25. Thank you for all the help. You're saying, it's your sermon. All right. Genesis chapter 25. And look at verse 21. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and, Rebe- and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the, tr- and the children struggled together within her. It's crazy. Th- these babies, they were fighting inside her. Does that sound comfortable? And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in Thy womb. Two nations. Katie, is that what it feels like right now? (laughs) Two nations. Two nations are in thy womb. What are those nations? Israel and Edom. Israel and Edom. That's what's being spoken of the whole time. And because people don't compare Scripture with Scripture, they don't understand that in the Old Testament, God deals with nations. What was his promise to Abraham that Abraham had to believe? Go into a land you know not of, and I will make of thee a great nation. That's what he had to believe. That's what he had to believe. Abraham believed that. We're going to see it in a little while. And God counted that to him for righteousness. He believed God that he was going to make of him a great nation. The Old Testament is about nations, primarily the nation of Israel. All right? So what nation is primarily dealt with in the Old Testament? Okay, you did pretty good. You did pretty good. What nation is primarily dealt with in the Old Testament? Israel. The New Testament is not about nations. The New Testament is about your individual salvation. So that's why I get really frustrated. I go to these meetings and these preachers are praying for national revival. National revival. And they go to all these Old Testament passages about the nation of Israel turning back to God. And I, I, this just happened this week. I'm at a meeting. This preacher's preaching on revival. And I write a note to my friend. Because that's what preachers do when other preachers are preaching. What's your favorite New Testament passage on revival? 
And he started laughing and took my notebook and wrote it back. I was just about to text that to you. There are no passages in the New Testament on revival because revival is an Old Testament concept of bringing the nation of Israel back to God. How are we doing in the United States with revival? Come on! Or to quote the president, come on, man. It's not coming back to revival. The Bible makes it very clear that everything tends from order to disorder. Oh, wait a minute. I thought that was one of the laws of thermodynamics. No, it's a law of scripture. Very important. All right. So from the nation of Israel to the church. Acts 2, 7. That Acts, I'm sorry, Acts chapters 2 through 7, it's clearly a message to the nation of Israel. And we'll break down the distinction in Acts chapter 7 a little bit later. Acts 28, Paul is teaching to individuals in Rome. The nation of Israel for the first seven chapters of the book of Acts is being called back to God to look for the Messiah. That's what they're called to do. Through the beginning of the book of Acts, by the time you get to Rome, Paul's meeting with individuals in his house, under prison, under guard. All right, so transition from Peter to Paul. From Peter to Paul. If you just get your Bible software out, Google in your Bible software. <laughs> I'm such a technological genius. Search in your Bible program for Peter in the book of Acts. And it'll only be at the beginning. Then transitions to the Apostle Paul when? After Acts chapter 13. It starts going. So, from Peter to Paul. Peter was the apostle to the Jews, and Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Pastor, you're making this stuff up, okay? Let's see what the Bible says. Galatians 2, 7 and 8. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. Is that pretty clear? Peter's the apostle to the Jews. Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles. Very important. I love it. God is, I I think that God, his sense of humor, his disdain for human arrogance, if you look deeper in your Bible, you find it. So Paul was probably the most educated man of his day. He was one of the greatest scholars. He would have had the entire Old Testament committed to memory He sat at the feet of the greatest teachers. He was one of the greatest living examples of what a Pharisee should be. And God chose the illiterate illiterate fishermen. Well, I don't know if he was illiterate, but the uneducated fishermen. The brute, the fighter, the brawler, the guy that when when he, he thought that his job was over because he was preaching the kingdom, Jesus got crucified, he went out and started fishing naked. Which is kind of gross, if you ask me. That's what he did. That's who God sends to these most arrogant people, the nation of Israel. And God sends the most brilliant, well-educated, scholarly man to us barbarians. Man, I love that. I love that. So it's a transition. And then it's also a transition from the kingdom of heaven message to the kingdom of God message. And we went over that last week. If you don't know the distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, you really need to listen to last week's message because you cannot understand your Bible without it. 
We always say this. The reason I know the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are different is because they're spelled with different letters. That lets me know that it's something different. All right? How many of you have ever said, you know, I'm praying to heaven. I can't wait for heaven to return. I can't. We don't exchange God and heaven. They're two different things. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Heaven is something that will pass away. That means it's physical. The spiritual is eternal. The only two, the only eternal things on earth are the word of God and the souls of men. The word of God is not going to go away. And every soul on earth will live forever, either in heaven or hell. Eternal. And so, when the Bible says heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away, well, heaven is a physical thing. And the kingdom of heaven is the physical kingdom that Jesus Christ is coming to establish on the earth. Romans uh, 14, 17, or 14, 13, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. It's a transition from a kingdom of heaven message. Remember Acts chapter 1? Well, Lord, will you, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's not for you to know the times or seasons. That's the beginning of Acts. And by the end of Acts, it's a complete kingdom of God message. All right? Now, this overlap, that's number one. Number two, do you feel like you're drinking from a fire hose right now? Let's keep going, all right? What happens when you ignore the difference between the Old and New Testaments? What happens when you do that? Well, you reveal, can I just be real plain? You reveal your ignorance of God's Word. And that leads to some devastating consequences. We confuse the distinction between law and grace. How many of you are glad you're under grace? What do you have to do to go to heaven? Believe. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. We took an offering a little while ago. That supports the work. Doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you get to go to heaven. We have a Baptist a baptistry there. We baptized a couple of weeks ago. Nobody goes to heaven because of that baptistry. It was so funny, you know, um, our community is Roman Catholic, and so that's infant baptism by sprinkling. And so when we had the baptistry brought in, the contractors were mostly Roman Catholic. And one of the guys says, what's that tub for? And so I had a chance to explain to him our doctrine of believer's baptism. Why? Because he's never seen it, didn't know anything about it, didn't understand who we are. And these distinctions, they all come from confusing law and grace. So it's like this. Let me give you some things that, that have been brought forward from the law. Black-robed priests. Now, here's a good question. All right, we'll see how many of you have done your biblical homework. How many of you are saved? You know Jesus Christ is your Savior. Okay. How many of you are priests? All of us. So let's say that. I am a priest. You ready? One, two, three. What does a priest do? A priest is a mediator, a go-between. That means you can go to God for somebody else through the high priest, Jesus Christ. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. For you are a, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. That's what the Apostle Peter talked about believers. You're a royal priesthood. So what came into so-called Christianity from the law? Black-robed priests. How about a sacrifice? 
a sacrifice that's made every time the Mass is given. That is a bloodless sacrifice. How many of you come from a Roman Catholic background? Is that what it's called? A bloodless sacrifice? And it, it actually is even more than that. Through what they call transubstantiation, that wafer and that wine, it actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says he tasted death once for every man. So that's something that was brought in, according to the book of Hebrews, that there's a, it, under the old sacrifice, there's a consciousness of sin. There's no forgiveness of sin. There's a remembrance of sin. So the priest has to come year by year by year by year and do it again. Man, my blood, my sin is gone because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That sacrifice is applied for me once for all. See, these are things that are brought in from the Old Testament. The works system from the Old Testament imposed on New Testament believers. But there's more. We confuse the distinction between law and grace. We lose the distinction between the nation of Israel and the church. Israel is not the church. All right? We are not Jews. In the church, the Bible says, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Now, Greek is like Kleenex. It's a name for tissues. Right? Somebody says, get me a Kleenex. And you go, and yours are from Walmart. You say, I'm sorry, I don't have any. No, no, no. It's a generic name, right? Are you following what I'm saying? No, it's not a generic name technically, but that's how we use it. All right? That's the way the Bible uses Greek to describe non-Jews. There's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. In Christ, we're one. We are not Jews. Now, don't think that I'm saying that in a pejorative way. They're God's chosen people. They're the apple of his eye. You touch them, you're touching the apple of God's eye. That's a bad idea. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. If you, wanna, if you want God to be on your side, be nice to his people. If you want God to come against you, well, go against his people. You'll see what happens. Okay? Go to Revelation chapter 2. Here's what happens when you confuse the Old Testament and the New Testament. Revelation chapter 2. And look at look at verse 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blessing of them which say they are Jews and are not. What's the word? Everyone, what's the word? Of them which say they are what? And are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So when, when people tried to take, they don't see a distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. What they believe is that all of the promises that were made to the nation of Israel... Every promise in the book is mine. That all of the promises that were made to Israel, when Israel rejected Christ, said, let his blood be on our heads and on our children's heads, that God turned from Israel and took all of those promises that God made to Israel, and now we are spiritual Israel, so God, all of those promises belong to the church now. God calls that blasphemy. 
He calls that the synagogue of Satan. Am I making it up? Or is it what the Bible says? You're not Jewish. I've got Jewish blood in me somewhere. I'm not Jewish. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. All right? So we lose the distinction between the nation of Israel and the church. What happens when we do that? So I mentioned what Catholicism, Roman Catholicism brought in. But what about Protestantism? What about Presbyterianism, Lutheranism, Methodism? What did they bring in by failing to see a distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament? B.B. Warfield, one of the most famous Protestant professors, Presbyterian at Princeton University, he was one of the big uh, uh, names in the fundamentalist modernist fight of the late 1800s, early 1900s. He's considered an orthodox Presbyterian scholar. Okay, He did a lot of good things. But let's see if we can see any problem in this statement on baptism. It is true that there is no express command to baptize infants in the New Testament. Now, can you get an amen on that? If you don't know, there are no babies baptized in the Bible. Okay? It is true that there is no express command to baptize infants in the New Testament, no express record of the baptism of infants, and no passage passage so stringently implying it that we must infer from them that infants were to be baptized. If such warrant as this were necessary to justify the usage, we would have to leave it completely unjustified. So what are they doing? Trust me, there's more that he's going to say on this. But what he's saying is this. Well, the Bible doesn't say we can't. Right? I'm going to jump off a, I'm going to go jump off a mountain. The Bible tells me, not, doesn't tell me I can't. Right? Remember when you were a kid? Well, at Susie's house, they can do that. You don't live at Susie's house. All right. If such warrant were necessary to justify the usage, we would have to leave it completely unjustified. Now, remember, this is one of the most brilliant scholars of his time. This is no dummy. And I think in his heart he knows how nonsensical the statement he's about to make is. But the lack of this express warrant is something far short of forbidding the right. And if the continuity of the church through all ages can be made good, the warrant for infant baptism is, are you ready? Not to be sought in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament where the church was instituted. So, and maybe this is just my own insecurity. I know sometimes when I'm teaching stuff to you, you're saying, come on, pastor, nobody teaches that. How about just the preeminent scholar of his day? Not to be sought in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament where the church was instituted, and nothing short of an actual forbidding of it in the New Testament would warrant our omitting it now. So, that was B.B. Warfield, late 1800s. This is John Gale, and I think this is from 1709. This particular book was published in 1723, but the sermon was preached in 1709. And he said this, "'Tis trifling, therefore, to be under any fears or doubts concerning them and their future happiness.'" They are safe in the hands of a merciful creator, that's, that's babies, 
who has not left their eternal happiness in any degree to the disposal, the mistakes, the caprice of ignorant men, but has always expressed a very great regard for the innocent, tender age, and has doubtless done for them all that's needful for their happiness and all that can be expected from a God of infinite boundless goodness, whose tender mercies are over all his works. He said this, and this is, this is so fun. He says, but now, so now he's going to answer this idea, nothing short of an actual forbidding. He says, but now to go on and just touch upon the other things I mentioned above. By the way, I didn't mention John Gale was a Baptist preacher in England at this time. But now to go on and just touch upon the other things I have mentioned above. Tis said that infant baptism is not prohibited. This is so very trifling that I should not have mentioned it were it not so commonly used by the pedo-baptists, that's baby baptizers. If from hence they would only infer that it is not lawful to dip and bathe their children in water for their health, or upon any civil account, this will not be denied. But if they mean that they are not forbid in a religious manner to baptize their children in the name, meaning into the Father, into the faith of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, when they have no faith, by the authority of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, who have given no such authority, it is not true that they are not forbid. For all falsehood is forbid. Besides, they may upon the very same foundation baptize their cattle too, and all their vessels and utensils, which now with, with doubtless be counted a profanation of the ordinance, notwithstanding we are not expressly forbid to do it, and as baptism receives all its value and efficacy only from the authority and command of the institutor, not everything which he has not prohibited, but only that which he has expressly commanded can be our duty to perform of any advantage to us and becoming us to do. Isn't that good? Basically what he's saying is anything that is not true is forbidden. And the Bible says who is to be baptized. If you believe, the Bible makes it very clear. Go to Mark chapter 16. I wonder if this passage is why this section is removed from modern Bibles. Um, Look with me at Mark chapter 16 and verse 16. So verse 15 for the context. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. All right? You believe and then you're baptized. It doesn't say if you don't believe and are not baptized. It says if you don't believe, you're damned. And notice what it says. It says, uh, everyone, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Salvation is by grace through faith. When you start including baptism into salvation, when you start saying that a baby becomes a child of God uh, when they're baptized, that, that's just a huge problem. And it's just, it's just not in the Bible. Um, the Bible says, well, let me, let me give you this. Adoniram Judson was a Baptist missionary. He said, we might reasonably refuse compliance, this is on infant baptism, 
until he should prove that we are bound to comply. So in the case of infant baptism, it is not necessary for us to urge one argument against it, nor is it sufficient for the proposer to prove that every objection is groundless. It is requisite for him to prove that it is obligatory. The question with every parent ought to be, am I under obligation to have my children baptized? Now, on what grounds is this obligation predicated? We should naturally expect that the baptism of infants, if enjoined at all, would have been enjoined in the law, which instituted the ordinance of Christian baptism. But this law is silent on the subject of infants. Has not Christ, however, left some other command in joining infant baptism? Not one. Have not the apostles, who were entrusted with farther communications of the will of Christ, left some command on this subject? Not one. Have they not left us some example of infant baptism? Not one. Have they not spoken of baptized infants and thus given undeniable intimation of this practice? No, in no instance. On the contrary, whenever they have spoken of baptism or of those to whom it was administered, their language implies that baptism was a voluntary act of worship and the baptized professing believers. As many of you, said Paul to the Galatians, as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ Jesus. And even in that section, you can see that, that Adoniram Judson, he left for Burma as a, as a congregationalist pastor, trained under the congregationalists. On the boat ride over, he determined to study the doctrine of baptism because he knew the missionaries he was going to be meeting were people like William Carey, the great Baptist missionary. And he knew that he would have to dispute with them over baptism. So he made it his mission to discover every passage the Bible uses on baptism and study it out. And what he found out was, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be a Baptist. And so he renounced his congregational faith. When he got to Burma, he was actually in India. He was baptized as a Baptist. He lost all of his support. One of his co-workers on a different ship. Luther Rice did the same thing, came to the exact same conclusion, and went home and raised support for this missionary because he was completely cut off from home because of believer's baptism. There are so many things that we could talk about with this, but I want to give you just one other thing, and then we're going to be done. So how does this work out? So you have Baptists, you have early the early church... The early church didn't practice any infant baptism. Um, I don't know if you know this, but all baptisms were by immersion. So you can study any history. John Calvin, I, I, I meant to bring in his commentary and read the section from Matthew. John Calvin said, baptism at this time was by immersion. It's certainly true that John immersed Jesus. Don't let this be of any concern to you. Immersion is not important. All right? So that's the view. That's the view. This is from a guy that would kill you if you disagreed with him. Ask Servetus what happened. More than 30 people were put to death in Geneva while Calvin, for spiritual reasons, while Calvin was in charge. But don't let the Bible bother you. Right? He was an evil, evil, wicked, wicked man. How many of you probably didn't know John Calvin was an evil, wicked man? Yeah, that's because you all hear about Calvinists all the time. So, very important that you get this. So, all of the early Christians immersed. The issue wasn't about immersion. It was about, should we baptize babies? 
they began talking about it around 200. A guy named Tertullian was a part of the conversation, and he said, of course you can't baptize a baby because a baby can't have faith. The baptism of babies didn't happen until Augustine in the 400s. And Augustine was the one who approved for the church the baptism of babies. Why? Because he came up with this teaching that, baby, that if, if baptism is necessary for salvation, that was his teaching, is baptism necessary for salvation? Remember what Paul said to the church at Corinth? I thank God that I baptized none of you. And he names two or three people that he baptized. And then he said, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Baptism is not a part of the gospel. It's part of the Great Commission, not a part of the gospel. So, Augustine starts imposing that and started imposing pastors on churches. There were a group of early Baptists in northern Africa called the Donatists. And here's what the Donatists said to, um, they were early Baptists. Here's what they said to Augustine. The Catholic Church is a human figment. The good father, meaning Augustine, sees no difference in a man of faith and an infidel as a baptizer. With us, bad men may be unknown as such. With them, they are well known to all. And so Augustine's pursuing them, trying to get them to unite back with the Catholic Church. He says, if we are criminals, why are you so clamorous for our communion? On the other hand, if we are innocent, why do you follow us with the sword? He said to these Donatist pastors, why do you continue your vain and fruitless controversy with us? God created man free. How am I to be deprived of that by human lordship, which God hath freely bestowed on me? He said, you boast of your church union, which is obtained by war and is stained with blood. Why was Augustine chasing these Donatists? He murdered 30,000 of them. Augustine, saint, godly saint Augustine was a mass murderer. That's more than the population of Sydney he killed. All right, why did he kill them? Believer's baptism. He killed them because they practiced believer's baptism and refused the authority of the Catholic Church. Refused his authority. There is no lordly authority of a church over a group of people. There's a group of people that gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. That's what a church is. And so this is the battle that's going on. So... They wrote this. It was foretold of the church of the it, it was foretold of the church of the coming Messiah that it should be composed of good and bad. No, this is from Augustine. That it was composed of good and bad members to the end of the world. Bad members in the church will not contaminate the good. Good members secure their own salvation. Ought to tolerate the bad in the church for the furtherance of theirs. So what he's saying is, in the church, you're going to have sheep and goats. That's Matthew chapter 25. That's the judgment of the nations. Do you know how I know that's the judgment of the nations? It says, and he shall gather all the nations together. That's how I know it's nations. Because it says he's going to gather the nations and judge them. It's a judgment of nations. And you have the sheep nations and the goat nations. What's the basis of the judgment? How did you treat Israel during the tribulation? The sheep nations go into the rest of the Lord, into the millennium. The goat nations, they go into outer darkness into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the sheep and the goats. Doesn't have anything to do with unbelievers in the church. See, what did Augustine do? Augustine couldn't divide sheep and goats. Augustine couldn't understand what was being spoken of. And so he killed them. 
And so two Donatist pastors, Patillion and Gaudentius, said, Think you to serve God by killing us with your hand? If, if ye err, if ye poor, poor mortals think this, God has not hangmen for priests. God appointed prophets and fishermen to spread the faith, not princes and soldiers. Augustine would have none of it. He had Patillion and Gaudentius killed. And when, he, they, when they complained about martyrdom, he said, martyrdom, there are no martyrs outside of the church. You kill yourselves by your own obstinacy. Do you know what happens when you don't distinguish between the Old Testament and the New Testament? You have God telling Israel to take Canaan and kill every man, woman, child, and beast to overcome it with the sword. And what the Catholic Church and then the early Protestants did, the magisterial reformers, they're called Zwingli and, and Calvin. What they did was they took that command to subdue the earth, to build an earthly kingdom from the Old Testament, and they applied it on the New Testament, and they killed people. You ought to read the book by Norman Padoritz. It's called Why Are Jews Liberal? Why Are Jews Liberal? And the whole thing is because Christians have killed them for 2,000 years. Christians have killed Jews for 2,000 years. Why? Because they did not know the difference between Israel and the church, and they did not know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is vital. It is vital that we understand that Israel is God's people. We must see a distinction. And God has never called us to kill anybody. We preach the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? You see, this right division, it is vital. And that is the heritage of our type of church, that we believe in salvation by grace through faith. Next week, Lord willing, I'm going to preach on Galatians 3 and show you how this breaks down in Scripture. But you have to see a distinction between law and grace, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. You must see a difference between Israel and the church. If you don't, then it just leads to all kinds of errors. Amen? Are you thankful you're saved by grace? How many of you are thankful that we don't have to go out there and kill somebody right now? Our job is to go out there and love them into Jesus Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of God. That's what we're supposed to do. Amen? All right. What's not found in the Old Testament? The church! Somebody listened. Let's all stand together. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word. And Lord, even though we didn't expound a lot of verses today, we're learning how to understand the verses that we read.